Hey, thank you so much for watching. So glad that you're here uh, with us. We're moving on in our series in Matthew in chapter 12. Uh, before we get there though, I just wanna make you aware of our Connections class that's gonna be starting on March 19th. Connections class, honestly, is one of the coolest things I think that we do as a church. It's um, just a round of five classes that happen at the nine o'clock service. And that starts March 19th. It's for anybody who either is new to ABC or feels new to ABC, or even for some ABC long timers um, who just want to get to know uh, what we do a little bit more and why we do what we do and just the kind of the core values uh, and the heartbeat behind our church. So if that applies to you in any way, I would love to see you at our Connections class March 19th. You can talk to Lori about that for more details, lori at abcchurch.org. Uh, you can find all that info on our website. So Matthew chapter 12, verses one through 14 today. It is a passage that uh, I think it's about more than what we think it's about when we read the little header in our Bible. We read Jesus is Lord of the Sabbath, but I think it's about far more than that. I think it's about answering this question, is Jesus the Lord? Is Jesus the Lord? That's the most important question that anybody could ever ask. Any human being to ever ask, is Jesus Christ the Lord? Or who is Jesus? On that question just hinges absolutely everything in life and in practice. And I find that so many people end up making decisions about faith or around faith because they ended up finding some dissatisfying answers to questions that were important, but they were not the most important question. Maybe it was a question or a problem they had with a specific church or a specific group of people or a specific um, belief or way that somebody behaved that one time or an experience they had with hypocrisy or, ah, oh, well, they seem like they hate those people or I don't know about like a, a worldwide flood and someone building an ark with all this animal. Like there's problems to questions that are important. Those are important things, but they're not the most important question. The most important is, who is Jesus? Is he the Lord? And second question, if he is, what kind of Lord is he? If Jesus Christ is the Lord, then what kind of Lord is he? What does he want from me? What does he deserve from me? And I wanna wrap the talk today in this idea that knowing what God wants comes from knowing who God is. Knowing what God wants comes from knowing who God is. In other words, an offering, a life, a worship that pleases God, it comes from a heart that knows God. And so I hope this passage will help us know God a little bit better today. In Matthew chapter 12, uh, we'll start reading just verses one through two. It says, at that time, Jesus went through the grain fields on the Sabbath. His disciples were hungry and they began to pluck heads of grain and to eat. But when the Pharisees saw it, they said to him, Look, your disciples are doing what is not lawful to do on the Sabbath. Okay, pause right there for just a second. Let's talk about the Sabbath. I don't think that today's passage is ultimately about the Sabbath, at least the way that Matthew has it documented. I think, honestly, Mark 2, it tells the same story, but the way that Mark writes it, it leans more uh, toward that conversation, I think. He includes the line when Jesus says, Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. I think the way that Matthew writes it is more focused on identity and lordship of Jesus. But if I were teaching through Mark chapter 2, here's a couple things I'd want us to know before we move on about the Sabbath, because I just think it's a really helpful context. 
Sabbath comes from the Hebrew word Shabbat, which means to stop and or to delight. It's a Jewish tradition from Friday sundown to Saturday sundown where there was no work, no, no, nothing burdensome, no buying or selling. All you did was you stop, you rest, you worship, and you delight. See, the Jewish calendar was rooted in these rhythms of faith, these spiritual rhythms, yearly rhythms, and feasts and celebrations, monthly rhythms, weekly rhythms, even daily rhythms of different prayer offices. This was a weekly rhythm, an expression of their collective faith, a statement that, hey, spending this day of the week resting in God, that will be far more beneficial than another day of just producing and consuming. It was also an act of resistance against the powers of the world as well as remembrance of God's ability to save them and free them, particularly from the hand of the Egyptians. The Sabbath didn't start with Jewish tradition, though, or with the Ten Commandments, but I'll argue it started in Genesis when God wove it into the fabric of reality. God worked six days and rested on the seventh. So think of this weekly rhythm not as ritualistic, but it's ingrained in how the universe was made. I love how H.H. Farmer says, if you go against the grain of the universe, you get splinters. Now, like it says in Mark 2, 27, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. So do you have to keep it? Like, are, are you bound to it? And I would say that to the extent that the Sabbath is upheld as part of the Jewish law, you are free, New Testament Christian. Yes, you don't necessarily have to do it exactly how they did it or, or why they did it. You don't have to Sabbath. But if I'm saying you don't have to Sabbath, I'm saying in the same way that you also don't have to avoid eating 12 donuts every day. Like that's not necessarily sinful per se, or you don't have to brush your teeth. You're not sinning per se, but you're just missing something that's really good for you. I think a lot of times that's our problem is that we're always looking for the lowest cost way to just avoid sinning, to live how we want without technically uh, being in sin, but you're just missing something that's really good for you. The Sabbath was made for you. A.J. Swoboda helps paint the need so well. He wrote in Subversive Sabbath, the Sabbath has largely been forgotten by the church, which has uncritically mimicked the rhythms of the industrial and success-obsessed West. The result, our road-weary, exhausted churches have largely failed to integrate Sabbath into their lives as vital elements of Christian discipleship. It is not as though we do not love God. We love God deeply. We just don't know how to sit with God anymore. We have become perhaps the most emotionally exhausted, psychologically overworked, spiritually malnourished people in history. That's piercing, huh? Spiritually malnourished people in history. Consider Sabbath then not as a rule to keep or, or religious ritual to uphold. Think of it as a day to heal. A rhythm built in every seven days to heal from the stress, from the busyness, from the wounds you've accrued throughout week after week. A day to remember that God is good and he's present. A time to delight in the time and the people that he's given you. Can you just imagine the change in your week if you were constantly living from that place of deep rest and refreshment rather than living from a place of overwork and overwhelm? Walter Brueggemann said that people who keep Sabbath live all seven days differently. So healing on the Sabbath, just think of that phrase, healing on the Sabbath, that's something that Jesus was known to do. Something he right here, he's in hot water for. He's getting in trouble for healing on the Sabbath. 
I just want us to hear that healing on the Sabbath is something that he would still love to invite you into, to literally heal on the Sabbath. That's a rhythm that could be available every week. Lastly, Seventh-day Adventists live 10 years longer than the average American. That's it. I'm just going to say that. So I don't know if you know, we're not Seventh-day Adventists, but Seventh-day Adventists, they are actually like religious about upholding the Sabbath. Uh, And somebody did a study and showed that they actually live 10 years longer than the average American. I'm sure a lot of that's focused on uh, diet and other factors as well. But is it a coincidence? A life with an actual rhythm of rest creates longer life. I don't know. I don't know if that's a coincidence. Anyways, that's all that I would say if I was preaching Mark chapter 2 and talking a lot about Sabbath, but we're not. Back to the scene. It was the Sabbath. So back to the scene. Um, Think about what they were doing. They were probably on their way to synagogue on the Sabbath. They were walking by some grain fields, plucking heads of grain and eating. Where does the permission for that even come from? Leviticus 19, uh, 9. When you reap the harvest of your land, this is uh, speaking to the Uh, to the farmers. You shall not reap your field right up to its edge, neither shall you gather the gleanings after your harvest. Those are supposed to be for the wanderers and the sojourners as they go by. Deuteronomy 23, 25 says, if you go into your neighbor's standing grain, so the people who are walking by, if you go into their standing grain, you may pluck the ears with your hand, but you shall not put a sickle to your neighbor's standing grain. Okay, the problem isn't what they were doing. They're totally allowed to do that. You can grab a snack on your way somewhere. The reference was to the fourth commandment, which is you shall not work on the Sabbath. But the problem with the fourth commandment, if I can say that, the, there's no problem with the fourth commandment. The, the, the challenge with it is that it doesn't really define working. So the Pharisees in their perspective right now, they're seeing them pluck heads of grain saying, oh, that's work on the Sabbath. But the fourth commandment doesn't even define it as that. But in that vacuum, so when the commandments don't define something super clearly, Jewish tradition, it would fill the vacuum. It would create its own rules. Some were that were very specific uh, and a little bit crazy. From the Jewish Mishnah, for example, here's a rule uh, that they created for the Sabbath. If a building fell down on the Sabbath, enough rubble could be removed to discover if any victims were dead or alive. If alive, they could be rescued. But if dead, the corpses must be left until sunset. Isn't that insane? So that's what they were doing. And that's why the Pharisees had a problem in that moment. Now, what I want to focus on is Jesus's reply to them. Jesus replies basically in three um, references to the Old Testament. And they're all under this, um, this umbrella. He said to them in verse three, he said to them, have you not read? And then he keeps going. I just think that's hilarious because we don't necessarily feel how offensive or condescending that would sound. But like these guys, they, it is their life and their livelihood and their profession. Like, yes, they've read, you know, like they've read the entire Old Testament scrolls again and again and again. Jesus said, oh, have you not read? I just love that. That's like me like asking Jeff, like when I beat him in that coffee tasting competition, like, oh, have you never had coffee before? Like that kind of question, you know? Or like asking Sean, like, oh, have you never worked out your biceps before? And, you know, it's like, it's so condescending, so offensive. So verse three, he said to them, have you not, re- oh, have you not read what David did when he was hungry and those who were with him, how he entered the house of God and ate the bread of the presence? which it was not lawful for him to eat, nor for those who were with him, but only for the priests. 
oh, have you not read what David did when he went in and got the bread of the presence? Okay, Jesus, what are you talking about? Go to 1 Samuel 21, 1 through 6. Let me read this um, passage really quick. This is what Jesus is referencing to the Pharisees right now. So then David came to Nob, to Ahimelech the priest, and Ahimelech came to meet David, trembling, and said to him, Why are you alone and no one with you? David said to Ahimelech the priest, The king has charged me with a matter and said to me, Let no one know anything of the matter about which I send you and with which I have charged you. I've made an appointment with the young men for such and such a place. Now then, what do you have on hand? Give me five loaves of bread or whatever is here. And the priest answered David, I have no common bread on hand, but there is holy bread if the young men have kept themselves from women. And David answered the priest, truly women have been kept from us as always when I go on an expedition. I love that line. <laughs> like, duh, that's Expedition 101, as always when I go on an expedition. The vessels of the young men are holy even when it is an ordinary journey. How much more today will their vessels be holy? Duh. So the priest gave him the holy bread, for there was no bread but the bread of the presence, which is removed from before the Lord to be replaced by hot bread on the day that it is taken away. Jesus brings up this example and says, okay, I get it, but what about... David, remember what he did. Remember how he, uh, because of kingly authority, he, he wasn't yet crowned king, but he was anointed already. Because of his kingly authority, it overrode the sacred ritual. And Jesus is saying, that's okay, and that's good. Ahimelech saw David's need and his authority, and he gave him the bread. What's interesting is, is Jesus doesn't even with his words condemn or approve the action. He just cites it. He just says, well, well look at what David did. Um, obviously, kind of by mentioning it, he, he implies that that's good. But here's the crazy thing about Jesus' example of David. That example, that argument, it only works if Jesus is as special as David. Right? Are you tracking? So Pharisees have a problem with what Jesus and his disciples are doing. And Jesus says, well, no, no, because David did this. See, it's okay. Well, no, Jesus, that's only okay if you're as special as David. Jesus, are you as special as David? That's the question it would beg in everybody's mind right then and there. But he goes on, verse five and six. Or think about another example, okay? Another Old Testament example. Have you not read in the law how on the Sabbath, the priests in the temple profane the Sabbath and are guiltless? I tell you, something even greater than the temple is here. That's a wild thing to say. But first, what is he talking about with the priests? Basically just the fact that on the Sabbath, there's a lot of work that needs to be done for the Jewish people to offer sacrifices successfully on the Sabbath. And some group of people has to do that work. And that group of people is the priests. Okay, when the priests do all of that work, I mean, there's like, there's killing of animals and there's kindling of fires and flames and there's trimming and there's butchering work. There's heavy lifting. There's all kinds of work. Okay, are they profaning the Sabbath? Like Jesus is really getting at them with some of the things they hold most precious and most dear and just saying, okay, like look, at, you, nobody upholds this perfectly. Like there's, there's, everybody has their exception. So think about the priests. Basically, there was a lot of work that went into the Sabbath. And because the work had to get done, because the worship was important, 
because God cares about the heart of his people, it's almost like he's not like nullifying the law, but he's just saying like, there's a purpose to the law. There's a heart to the law. And, and this is how you accomplish the heart of that law. So, so you guys understand this, right? And he's saying this to the Pharisees and the Pharisees are just kind of nodding along like, yes, well, that's, that's different. Like, of course, you know, of course the priests have to work on the Sabbath, but they're the priests, you know? And again, with this example, this reference, begging the question of Jesus, okay, are you saying that you are more special than like all of the priests in the Old Testament? Like the entire Levitical order? And it's like, it's, it's heavily implied with what Jesus is saying. Buried in this, he's saying that something even greater than the temple is here. Buried in that, he's saying he's, he's greater than the temple. He's greater than the law. And he's already started to, to paint this picture that he's even greater than the Sabbath. These are three realities that are dearest to the people of God. You should be thinking, okay, wait, that's a lot, Jesus. You're saying a lot right now. And wait, there's more, okay? He goes on to his third allusion here from the Old Testament. He compares himself to a, a prophet or he uses a prophet as an illustration. And if you had known what this means, verse seven, if you had known what this means, I desire mercy and not sacrifice, you would not have condemned the guiltless. Referencing Hosea 6.6, 6, it says this, For I desire steadfast love and not sacrifice, the knowledge of God rather than burnt offerings. So in that context, the prophet Hosea was giving a firm rebuke to the unrepentant people of Israel and Judah. Jesus now, he's taking the same pointed rebuke and he's applying it to the Pharisees. He's saying, I don't want your performances. God is not impressed. God wants your heart. God wants you to act the way that someone would act if they really loved the Lord. He doesn't just want these empty, hollow, religious sacrifices and offerings. So he's making the point that if they could see just how far they had strayed, how far they themselves had missed the mark from God's intention, if they could just see that, they would never condemn people for grabbing a snack on the Sabbath on their way to synagogue. Okay, Jesus, that's a lot. You're coming at the Pharisees pretty, uh, pretty strong here. Uh, and wait, there's even more. He closes what he says with this line in verse eight. The son of man is Lord of the Sabbath. He just, he builds and builds and builds. Pharisees have a problem. He says, oh, but look at David, implying that he's greater than David. And he says, look at the priests, implying that he's greater than the priests. He says, look at the prophecy, implying that he himself is greater than all the major and the minor prophets. And now he ends with this line, the son of man is Lord of the Sabbath. And I just have to imagine everybody goes so quiet at this point. And the Pharisees' anger is like welling up inside of them and confusion is stirring in the crowd. And I'm just imagining like total silence, like crickets. And the disciples are kind of like over in the corner and like, you know, Andrew's still like just chewing on some grain, you know? And Peter's like, bro, spit that out. He's like, no, Jesus is like saying it's okay. And he like spits it out. Or like his mouth drops so like it falls out of his mouth. What does Jesus mean? when he calls himself the son of man. Is it like he's just saying he's a human, like he's the son of a man, like everybody else? Not exactly. Let me read from Daniel chapter seven really quick. 
I saw in the night visions, and behold, so this is the prophet Daniel. I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a, listen, son of man. And he came to the ancient of days, named for God, and was presented before him. And to him, to the son of man, was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. Okay, at this point, to use the phrase, the son of man is Lord of the Sabbath, that's almost redundant. The son of man is Lord of everything. And anybody who had ever read the Old Testament understood that full well. The son of man, yeah, that's the Lord. That's like the one who, who is with God and presented to God for God. And he has an everlasting dominion that shall not pass away. His kingdom is one that can't be destroyed. That's the son of man. Yeah, of course he's the Lord of the Sabbath because he's Lord of everything. Jesus is just like stay, like driving in the nail to make it obvious in case someone there was somehow still missing what he was getting at. See, Jesus right here, he uses his words along with three Old Testament references to establish himself as the son of man and the Lord of the Sabbath. So that question I asked at the beginning, who is Jesus? Let me just say, Jesus Christ is the Lord. Jesus Christ is the Lord. That is the only option that Jesus leaves open to us to identify who he is. He, he doesn't let us identify him as a teacher or, um, or just a good guy or just a spiritual guru or just a whatever, like a neat kind of weird prophet. Like there's, there's so many ways to identify Jesus, but he doesn't leave any of those legitimately open to us. He's the Lord and he's nothing less than that. Jesus Christ is the Lord. But then he uses his deeds to show what that means and why it matters. What kind of Lord is he? What does he want from me? What does he demand? Matthew 12, 9 through 14, let me read through this event that happened next, and then we'll work our way towards the close. He went on from there and entered their synagogue, and a man was there with a withered hand. And they asked him, so the Pharisees still kind of trailing him, trying to get him in trouble. They asked him, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath so that they might accuse him? He said to them, which one of you who has a sheep, if it falls into a pit on the Sabbath, will not take hold of it and lift it out? Of how much more value is a man than a sheep? So it is lawful to do good on the Sabbath. That's a savage statement. I love that. Then he said to the man, stretch out your hand. And the man stretched it out and it was restored, healthy like the other. But the Pharisees went out and conspired against him. How to destroy him. Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? If you could show me in one sentence that you've completely, hopelessly missed the point of all religious practice, that's the sentence right there, Pharisees. Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? Here's a good day that's intended for people. Here's a good thing, healing. But here's the thing, is it lawful? Will we allow this, right? In the Gospel of Mark, it says that Jesus looked around at them with anger, grieved at their hardness of heart. You have to appreciate the brilliance of his response, though. Jesus responds three sentences that just so beautifully and logically land on this conclusion he gives. <clears throat> Jesus' order goes, number one, he appeals to the heart. He says, what if it was your sheep? Right? He says, what if your sheep was lost on the Sabbath or it fell into a pit? 
wouldn't you lift it out? Okay, that makes sense, appeal to the heart. Number two, he applies logic then. Well, aren't people worth more than sheep? Yeah, even the Pharisees need to admit that people are worth more than sheep. And then he concludes with a fair amount of sass that I love. So it is lawful to do good. Yeah, yeah, of course. Like who would ever disagree with that? They're asking, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? And they think that that's like a different question. They think that that's more complicated. Like that's more scholarly. You need to sit and think about that. And Jesus just responds with an answer that's as simple as that question demands. Uh, an answer that's almost as sarcastic as that question demands. Yeah, it's lawful to do good on the Sabbath. <clears throat> See, in this scene, Jesus was far more interested in healing somebody than he was in flawlessly maintaining human ritual. So when you ask what kind of Lord is he and what does he want, he's the kind of Lord who wants to meet people where they are without any pretense or performance. He wants religious practice only to facilitate genuine offerings from genuine people who genuinely and simply and needfully love him. He's the kind of Lord who sees the heart. He sees our hearts. He wants to purify our mixed motivations and he longs more than anything to heal us. That's why the prophet Isaiah in chapter 53, he says that Jesus was stricken and afflicted and pierced and crushed so that by his wounds, we would be what? Healed. He longs to heal us. Now, of everything I just said, just walked through kind of this big, you know, story scene with Jesus and the Pharisees and the disciples and some grain and talking about the Sabbath. What I want you to pull, these three ideas, just three takeaways um, that, that are really standing out to me in my mind and heart as I work through this. Uh, number one is this idea that when he says the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath, that's in Mark 2. The system serves the heart, okay? That's how it's made to be, not the other way around. The religious system serves a genuine heart of faith. The Pharisees had gotten it wrong to the point that they were using a religion not to serve God, but to control God. Not to be with him, but to maintain safe distance from him. See, that's always the problem with a moralistic religious system is that if it is possible to earn God's love and favor from your behavior, then what you'll end up doing is honoring him with your lips while your heart is far from him. That's always where that'll end because that's easier and safer than actually giving him your heart. Pete Scazzaro calls this using God to run from God. My question for you then on that idea, my question is this, in what ways have I used religion as an attempt to run or hide from God or to control God? In what ways have I used religion as an attempt to run or hide from God or to control God? Idea number two is this, that the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. If that's who Jesus is, he's not just Lord of the Sabbath, he's Lord of absolutely everything. That's who the Son of Man is by default. You've heard the phrase, Jesus is either Lord of all or he's not Lord at all. My question for you is, in your life, in my life, is Jesus Lord of all? Are you letting him be the only version of himself that he gives us permission for him to be? You know, like there's, there's nothing, he doesn't, he doesn't say, I'll be, you know, Lord of this section and this section and this section. That's not it. Like we, we don't get to decide the you know, the purview that Jesus has over our life. He gives us this one option. I'm the Lord, the son of man. I have all the dominion. I am the Lord. Do you, do you want me or not? 
My question is, is he the Lord of all in your life? Is he the Lord of your your job and your money and your family and your thoughts and your your feelings, your habits, your rhythms, your like is he the Lord of all? Lastly, number three, the whole scene, it works towards this healing, right? Jesus is healing somebody on the Sabbath. He is more interested in real healing and life transformation than he is in the hollow religion and the performance of the Pharisees. The same is still true. And I want to leave you with this idea that Jesus is more interested in your healing than your performance. He is more interested in your healing than your performance. He died to make it possible for you to be eternally healed once and for all from your sin. But he still wants to work day to day in this life to make you less broken and more whole. So my question is this, in what ways is Jesus inviting me to heal right now? In what ways is Jesus inviting me to heal right now? I just want you to be asking yourself those questions. Am I using religion in a way to to control God, to run from or to hide from God? Is Jesus really the Lord of all in my life? And if so, in what ways is he inviting me to heal right now? Let me pray. Father, thank you for today. Thank you for your word and the stories, the, the real true stories that we have access to because of it. God, thanks for this scene. Jesus, where once again, you so helpfully deconstructed the wrong assumptions that the Pharisees had. Assumptions that lots of times we, by our default, fall into. We think that maybe we could please you just with our performance. Or if there's, if there's a list of rules, then I can keep it. And, and then I can be good. And then I don't actually have to give you my whole heart. But God, you want us, you want our hearts, you want our lives, our obedience, our love. So Jesus, would we be people who, um, God, we give you everything. We say that you are the Lord of all that we have, and we would follow you into what you have for us. Lord, you are Lord of all. Lord of the Sabbath. That includes Lord of the Sabbath. If there's any way that you would invite us to to heal this week, uh, even today as we're watching this and listening to us uh, to this, God, would you continue to heal us and make us more whole as people? We love you so much. We'd be honored in our lives. In Jesus' name, amen.